This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have with this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. My guest on this podcast is Dustin Heister, Chief Innovation Officer at eRepublic. What keeps me kind of passionate about this space is just seeing basically how innovative government can be. It's about how do we use technology to solve problems for people. We can't plan things on a linear scale anymore. Change happens exponentially, both from a technology standpoint, but I think the key here is also from a behavior standpoint. Really, I think the, the opportunity here is to create a system where government and people can have a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, as Clay Shirky says in his book, Cognitive Surplus, we have, you know, so much excess capacity that's untapped right now. To become smarter, you have to leverage what you already have. I think when it comes to AI and government, there's more opportunity than challenge at this point. Keeping up with change today requires thinking exponentially. So you have to have an exponential mindset. When you build systems to leverage people in a meaningful way, a mutually beneficial relationship, that's where the magic happens. This is Dustin. He's the Chief Innovation Officer for eRepublic, a Californian-based state and local government media and research company. As the former Chief Information Officer and Assistant City Manager for the city of Mandarin, Texas, David quickly built up a track record and reputation as an early innovator in civic tech. He pioneered government use of commercial technologies not before used in the public sector. He was named government technology top 25 doer, dreamer and driver in 2009. And his work was featured in Wired, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, Inc. and The Today Show on NBC. Dustin continues to work with Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, academia, and not-for-profits around the globe on innovation and engagement strategies. I invited Dustin to my podcast to get his perspective on the unique opportunity that public servants have today to write new chapters if technology and people blend in the right way. During this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, what governments can and must do to grow value exponentially. Secondly, the opportunity that arises when governments tap into the cognitive surplus, i.e. the excess capacity that's available outside their physical organization. And thirdly, why it is key to empower their employees to help drive the change that needs to be done. So I'm uh, Dustin Heisler. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer for a company called eRepublic, which is their parent company, 
of many notable publications within state local government here in the United States, including Government Technology Magazine, Governing Magazine, Public CIO, Future Structure, lots of different things. And my role as Chief Innovation Officer is to work with industry and also work with government on making sense of the future. And, you know, looking at all of these crazy technologies that are out there and how we diffuse them into the public sector. And then also, you know, from a market standpoint, you know, how do we help industry best serve government? And so there's a lot of work that goes into that, but it's an exciting time to be in and around the public sector market. And uh, it's really exploding here in the United States and it's become a global thing as well. So exciting times. Exactly, exactly. So do you have any special passion, special drive that uh, that gets you going every day? Yeah, you know, my thing is everyone always considers government to be, you know, incredibly bureaucratic and they don't want to change or do anything. And, you know, I was a public servant. I was a CIO and assistant city manager for five years. And what keeps me kind of passionate about this space is just seeing basically how innovative government can be. And there's so many change agents that are in agencies across the country from large, you know, state agencies and federal agencies down to the smallest of small cities. There's people that are really pushing the envelope with what's possible. And, you know, my mission is how do I give them some air cover? How do I best, you know, help them and how do I accelerate that at scale? And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that excites me every morning when I get up is just looking at what's possible in the public sector, but also recognizing people that are in the trenches doing the work today that just needs some help, some guidance. And, you know, ultimately that that's kind of what drives me. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Do you have any recent examples of what you, how you, well, you, you call it, how, how governments push the envelope around innovation? Good examples that you've seen that are working. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, you have everything from, you know, agencies using elements of artificial intelligence and chatbots to augment their employees. We've seen, you know, uh, like the Los Angeles business uh, development or business network has, you know, created a chatbot called Chip that you can actually interface with and ask questions about starting a business within that area. We've seen, you know, the rise of all kinds of, you know, new use cases to hack procurement and government. So, Startups and Residence is a program that was spearheaded by Jay Nath in San Francisco. He's a chief innovation officer there to really find ways to incubate technology inside of the public sector. And so he started there and has grown it into a national program now that has cities all over the United States that are participating in it. All the way down to small cities like, you know, here in Texas, there's a city by uh, Rockdale, Texas, is doing some, you know, just interesting work as they're trying to find ways to reinvent themselves at a very small level, but they're looking at, you know, everything from using, you know, available spectrum to do broadband internet for their citizens to finding innovative ways to incubate technology at the local level. So there's just so many examples across the country of agencies that are trying to make sense of all of these things. And it's not all, you know, most of the time you consider these things to be like smarter cities movement. It's not all about that. It's about how do we use technology to solve problems for people, whether there are employees that get hounded with, you know, requests about how do I start a business or whether they're, you know, actual citizens that are having to use these services and experiencing pains and problems in the process. Cool. Yeah, I, I agree. I see this, those type of initiatives in Europe as well. What I, when I was uh, looking into your, uh, into your profile and, and reading what you've been well, publishing recently, I bumped into something that you call a primer around exponential government. Mm-hmm. What's the big idea behind that? 
because it's it's it was an interesting read by the way thanks yeah so so exponential government is something that i worked on with my colleague uh, dr paul taylor and essentially what we set out to do is we looked at companies like uber and airbnb and you know at the time these were companies that were considered very disruptive to government. You know, this was back in an era where government was cracking down on Uber. They were cracking down on these sharing economy companies because they didn't understand how they fit into their existing regulatory structures. And so we kind of posed the question, what would happen if government actually leveraged what made these companies so disruptive and applied it to itself? You know, what would it be like to reverse engineer Uber and leverage those same dynamics inside of the public sector. And so that kind of gave birth to what we call exponential government, which is essentially just a new way of thinking about change and all of these new things that are happening in the public sector. We can't plan things on a linear scale anymore. We can't look, you know, a few years out and say, oh, well, you know, I see that coming. I have time to expect it and anticipate it. Change happens exponentially, both from a technology standpoint, but I think the key here is also from a behavior standpoint with employees and constituents. And so basically it's a framework to look at three layers of government and how you embrace technology and new behavior within those layers. So it starts with, you know, infrastructure, you know, how do I enable a foundation uh, from an infrastructure standpoint to allow me to scale, to allow me to yep. you know, be future proof uh, the people side, you know, how do I enable my workforce to maybe not all work for me directly. Maybe I need to leverage crowdsourcing and freelancers and other things as I start to look at ways to bridge the gap. And then the last piece is the intelligence piece. You know, how do I actually make sense of all of the data that I have? And when you look at these companies that have embraced exponential that have been so successful, you know, it's really because they focused on building this way of thinking and this process around the exponential change that's there. And they've anticipated that for their respective markets. So we think government and we know government can do the same thing. So this was a framework that we put together just to help guide agencies in the process. And it's always evolving because, as we know, change is exponential. Yeah, exactly. I mean, is there any pickup on that? I mean, are, are you yeah. actively working with governmental organizations to, uh, yeah, to, to see what they can do to apply that exponential government concept yeah. to them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all over the United States, and I would say even worldwide. I mean, I've had countries reach out that are looking at applying elements of exponential government into the way that they do things. And so there's there's so much that's happening. And, you know, we've been fortunate to just have really great relationships with a lot of the state and local government leaders here, both from an IT standpoint and from a policy standpoint. And so, yeah, there's, there's, you know, a lot of reception to it. And it also provides, you know, the reason why I like frameworks, sometimes they sound boring. But the reason why I like it is because it gives government something to point to so that if someone doesn't understand why we need to move faster than ever today in the public sector, they have something to say, this is why, you know, because the world is moving exponentially and these are what other agencies are doing. And this is why we need to start to focus on, you know, changing and, and being agile and being adaptive to the environment that, that we're in. So it's had great pickup, great reception. And, you know, we're always looking for other collaborators on it as well. So it's, it's not a set in stone thing. It's something that evolves as more agencies look at using it as a, as a lens on the world around them. And so, uh, so if anyone's listening that, you know, wants to participate, collaborate, anything else, we're, we're always open to, uh, to continuing to evolve this, uh, this framework for government. Cool. So yeah, talking about one of the big, the, the big phrases in that they try to reinvent themselves. What, what do you feel is the potential if governments reinvent themselves? When, what, what would governments get from this and what would citizens get, get from this? What are the big, yeah. 
I think it, it comes down to what we call the government experience. So, you know, right now you've got these two silos, these two factions. You've got government and you've got the constituents or businesses that are served by government. And traditionally, we've designed government from the top down to to basically, you know, solve the problems of this other camp. And we've seen lots of different, you know, things that have come in to try to bridge these two divisions, you know, citizen engagement, something we called government 2.0 back in the early 2000s, lots of different things. But really, I think the, the opportunity here is to create a system where government and people can have a mutually beneficial relationship. And it's something that we call the government experience. It's really built around people. And the benefit for the public sector is it, this goes well beyond just, you know, engaging people. I mean, you know, having someone like your government's page on Facebook is great for, you know, getting public participation and other things. But in reality, that does not create a business value for the agency. You know, you can count how many likes or smiley faces or other things that you got, but it doesn't actually solve problems. So, so the challenge here and the opportunity is how do we actually allow people to provide meaningful feedback to the public sector so that they can design services built around their needs? And so that's where we see this really interesting shift happening as we start to take this kind of human-centered or citizen-centered approach to how we build services. And the opportunity is that the people in government, or the people that are served by government, sorry, can be a extension of uh, basically the government workforce. So why can't a grant application be written by someone that has excess time that's a citizen that doesn't work for an agency? Maybe they're passionate about it. So I think, you know, as Clay Shirky says in his book, Cognitive Surplus, we have you know, so much excess capacity that's untapped right now, both inside of, you know, our organizations as well as outside with the people that we serve. And so that's where we see, you know, government can be a very agile, nimble and innovative organization and entity if they focus on finding ways to unlock that potential that people have. And government can lead change. I mean, look at all of these pioneers that have you know, all these technologies from the internet, you know, beyond that have been pioneered and incubated by government to some capacity. I mean, this is really a function of, of what government does. And, you know, we think that that can be done at scale. And it's not just, you know, at the federal level, really, you know, it can be done at scale across state and local government and cities yeah. can be laboratories and test beds of, you know, some of the greatest innovations that, uh, that society needs. Yeah, I think that's, that's what you refer to in, in the, the paragraph around infrastructure, where you talk about leveraged ecosystems and leveraged internet-connected devices, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. You know, you can leverage people and devices in new ways. So, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. When you look at smarter cities, a lot of times when I talk to agencies, sometimes they think in order to be smart, I have to go spend millions of dollars and put sensors all over my city. And have every streetlight have some, you know, environmental sensor that can count and, you know, sense different things. That's not how to become smarter. That's actually how to spend a lot of money very quick. To become smarter, you have to leverage what you already have. You have to leverage the people and the devices that you already have. And so, I mean, think about what happened uh, to Navtech. I mean, Navtech used to be an engine behind our maps. It was, you know, some, it was the, our way of finding out, you know, what roads to avoid. I mean, our earliest GPS units were powered by this. Uh, they were bought by Microsoft for a billion dollars. And then all of a sudden, this app called Waze came and said, hey, you don't have to as actually embed a sensor in the road. We're just going to leverage everyone that uses the Waze mobile app to become yeah. a sensor to the network. And so that analogy applies to everything in government because people can do that. And it's not about letting them share their data and the big brother aspects of it. I mean, this is about 
allowing people to meaningfully engage with government beyond just, you know, liking things on Facebook and doing those types of things. It's letting them actually help do the work of government and help assist government in designing services for the future. True. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've bumped into some examples. It was already, I think, a couple of years ago, whereby I think it was in Berlin or in a German city, citizens could report damage to the road or garbage that needed to be collected. So at the end, that signal is coming from the citizen and it's a win-win situation for both. These type of situations, I would say. So if you look at the whole discussion around artificial intelligence and machine learning, do you see that as a, I mean, what's your view on the discussion around automating people out of a process or actually helping the, using the technology to do, to do more and better? So I'm a, I'm a tech optimist. And I think that, you know, although we want to have checks and balances on the development of artificial intelligence, any major technological change that's happened in society has basically eliminated the need for certain skills and created new skill sets as a result. So, you know, what we're going to see is not necessarily the elimination of jobs per se. I mean, eventually certain jobs may go away within the public sector, but it's going to really create opportunities for reskilling and allowing people to do more meaningful work. And I mean, you know, you can look at that from things like uh, the way that we schedule our meetings, right? I mean, no one likes scheduling meetings for people. And so I use a service called x.ai that is, you know, basically Amy Ingram is kind of the, the AI behind it. And the premise is that Amy can schedule all of my meetings for me. And most people don't even realize that she's not a human being. And my real secretary loves that because she doesn't have to schedule my meetings, right? I mean, so it becomes a, a multiplier and an augmentation of what they do. And she can now focus on far more meaningful work that, you know, basically allows her to uh, maximize her time. So I think when it comes to AI and government, there's so much, op- there's more opportunity than challenge at this point. And I think that, you know, agencies have to approach these massive shifts in the workforce. And I think we've got a lot of things that are happening. It's not that technology is going to replace jobs. It's that people just don't necessarily pick government as a career path as much anymore. So Mm -hmm. there's challenges with how we recruit, retain, and even how we classify and employ. I mean, we saw that fight with Uber and some of these sharing economy companies with, you know, what is a W-2 versus 1099 contractor? You know, how do they, how do they fit? And in my opinion, I think that we're going to see not just technological change in the workforce, but we're going to see a, a redefinition of what we call work that impacts every industry that, you know, you don't have to be a full-time employee in order to engage in meaningful work for a company. And what we saw with the gig economy and sharing economy is really just a start, I mean, uh, of a much bigger shift. So what do you feel is the impact of that for government? So on the work side, I mean, I think the opportunity for government is that they need to find ways to tap external talent outside of what they would classify as a regular full-time employee. I mean, there's 19,000 cities in the United States alone. Some are yeah. big, some are small. Now, each one of those cities can't hire every single job title that they need in order to make sense and survive the future. I mean, take, for instance, the chief information security officer position. I mean, CISOs can go and they can work for a company and make a, and garner a very competitive salary and most of them probably don't want to go work for a city under 100,000 population that's going to pay them less than six figures. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, the challenge that we have is that we can't hire the talent that we need to solve the problems that we have and that are coming. So we have to find a creative way to do it. And so that's where, you know, agencies might look to the private sector to help bridge that. But I see an opportunity for agencies to incubate a talent pool of contractors 
in order to, you know, create, I mean, kind of like how they deal with attorneys today. I mean, all agencies can't hire an attorney, so they'll put them on retainer. What if you could do the same thing with other job titles? What if you as a city could hire a chief information security officer on retainer so that as something arises, as the need arises, you could actually leverage them, but you're not paying them six figures to do it. You're paying them on demand as needed. It doesn't diminish the quality of the work that they do. It doesn't diminish their specialty, but it really allows you to take someone that's very talented and scale them to multiple agencies, uh, you know, if not tens of agencies uh, or yeah. hundreds of agencies. So, so that's where I, where I see the real opportunity for government. We have to get creative with workforce. We have to you know, address the elephant in the room, and that's that people aren't signing up to work in all of these positions that we need in government. So we have to find a more creative way of doing that. And offering a flexible work day or the ability to work from home one day a week is not going to solve this problem. No, correct, correct. I mean, there was an interesting statistic in your paper there, whereby you mentioned that well, the largest uh, group in the workforce, at least by, 20, by 2025, is going to be millennials. And that's exactly the group that's not working for government. Yes. So how yes, is government I- going to going to deal with that, having people that are not millennials, whereby they have to serve them in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean, I think, so this is, this is where they're just going to have to find creative ways to plug into that group, whether it's, you know, freelancing or some form of contracting as part of it. I mean, the workforce is shifting very radically. And, you know, there's so many books that are written about millennials and about how you need to adjust your workforce and adapt everything. But I mean, the, I think the bottom line is, is just that people the millennial generation and the generation after them are finding ways to monetize their capacity like no other generation before them. They're finding ways to work for 10 different companies at you know, the same time and you know, monetize their excess capacity. And so this is starting to trickle into some of the other generations that we're seeing as well. But I think government has to get with the game and start to look at ways to leverage that to their benefit and you know, use it to be a force multiplier for them. I think the other opportunity too is for government to get back into what we would call a shared services model. So shared services isn't new for government. Many agencies would build large data centers and they would share the cost of it. But I think we need a shared services model around people. So agencies, the 19,000 agencies that are there, do they each need their own chief information security officer or can a larger agency basically use theirs and allow the other agencies to help offset the cost of it. So that way there's a shared services model around people. And so I think those are ways to deal with some of those dynamics, but it's going to take, you know, really a collaborative approach across the different levels of government to, yeah. uh, to incubate and test this. Yeah, that's already things that are happening in Europe. I mean, I, I have examples in uh, the Nordics, whereby on the one hand side, it started with shared services, which was about infrastructure shared services. So indeed, computers and, and office room and these type of things. But at some point in time, a number of cities started to collaborate also whereby one city would, would take care of, of, for example, for payroll, and the other city would then take the, the actions for procurement for all the neighboring cities as well, which, is, yep. which are good examples of that. And it's possible. What is next in this? What are the, the, the top three things that are now going to, to go mainstream in the next two, three years? That's a good one. So, you know, thinking about what's next for government, we're going to see massive shifts in, you know, the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, you know, data analytics, basically that whole band 
of technologies around making sense of data for the public sector. There's, you know, we're, we're kind of at, I consider like the 2010 app store where right now we've got a lot of things like the calculator app and the flashlight app, Mm -hmm. but we haven't really seen the full enterprise applications associated with AI and machine learning applied to government yet. There's pockets of it and there's a lot of companies doing some great work here. So I think we're going to see AI grow up in the public sector and start to become more useful. Agencies are going to start to you know, move from these legacy IT systems that they've had in the past and start to look at ways to unlock the data that they have to make AI actually possible. We're going to see the rise of the Internet of Things. And this is going to be not just you know, people being connected to the Internet everywhere they go. We're kind of seeing a blending happening and a blurring of a line between what we would call industrial IoT and consumer IoT. And so those lines are basically blurred to the point where, you know, now I can have, let's say, my Nest thermostat that's in my house that I've partnered with the city. You know, the city's given me a subsidy to put it in my house so that in the event of peak utilization of the network, they can actually adjust it so that they don't have to uh, experience a blackout. Well, you know, that's a consumer piece of technology that also has industrial applications because that same infrastructure can be flipped around and used to create a blackout. So I think that, you know, Internet of Things is going to have lots of different things that happen over the next few years, but it's going to also mature and it's going to grow up and we're going to start to treat consumer and industrial IoT as one thing, uh, which hopefully will lead us to look at standards that, you know, are well beyond just what the manufacturers slap onto it. Because, you know, right now I kind of consider what's happening in IoT like, you know, the VHS and Betamax moment. We're kind of waiting to see what standards ultimately going to win. And that is a flawed way to do it because we're not talking about, you know, VHS and Betamax for entertainment. We're talking about internet connected devices that have the ability to cripple critical infrastructure if they're compromised. So, so, so I think we'll see some growing up there. And then I think the third layer that, you know, we're really excited about in the future is this focus on experience. And, you know, right now you can go to 90,000 plus different government websites to engage in, you know, completing whatever service they have online. And, you know, you go to a government website, you see every possible interaction that you could have on that website. And I think agencies are starting to shift the way that they think. And we're going to start to see new ways to access government that don't require you going to a website. You may use a voice assistant in order to, you know, renew your driver's license. There's states like the state of Utah and the state of Mississippi that are already building skill sets and already have them available on some of these new AI engines like the Amazon Echo. So you're going to see a lot more of that. You're going to see government get focused on the experience. And ultimately, you know, that's going to provide a much more effective way of delivering services. And it's going to be less painful for the consumers at the end of the day. And there's a lot of tech that will go into that. You know, we kind of see the rise of government as an API uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, maybe in the future, you government doesn't have to build all these front doors in order to access it. Maybe you leverage a third party that has found an intelligent way to tie into it. So th- there's going to be a lot of changes there as well that we're really excited about. Cool. Getting close to half an hour. One more question about, well, government's, executives listening to the podcast what advice would you give them to start to start tomorrow what are two or three small steps to make big impact yeah that's that's a great question so i mean i think you know number one keeping up with change today requires thinking exponentially so you have to have an exponential mindset so if you're planning regardless of 
you know, what your role is in leading your agency. You may not even be involved in technology. You have to think broader than your box that you're kind of managing. You have to think into, you know, how will self-driving cars impact my roadways and behavior associated with it. Government has to plan for the exponential in all things. I think number two, you have to be, you have to think in terms of agility and adaptation. So you have to find ways to constantly evaluate where you're at and adapt and pivot and move. I kind of call it operating in a continuous state of improvement or beta because you're never going to get to a point in the public sector where you're done. You know, building a road and finishing and, you know, popping a bottle of champagne and drinking it, you're not done. You, you know, your next project begins. And so I think you have to have that mindset in how you, in how you do things. And then I think, you know, from a, from a leadership standpoint, empowerment is so important in, you know, keeping up and making sense of the future. And so you have to really look at empowering your employees to help drive the change that needs to be done. And I would take that a step further. You also have to look at ways to enable and engage your constituents, business partners, or end users to allow them to provide more meaningful input to you than, you know, filling out a survey once a year or, you know, looking at the Google analytics of their behavior. You have to talk to them, you have to engage them, and you have to tap their cognitive surplus, their excess capacity to do more because people are capable of far more than they're doing today. And when you build systems to leverage people in a meaningful way, a mutually beneficial relationship, that's where the magic happens. That's why companies that are tapping into the sharing economy are doing so well. It's because they've figured out that combination of value. I couldn't uh, agree more with you. Thank you very much for your uh, inspiring thoughts and insights. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And for everybody else that tuned into this podcast, thank you for doing so. I had the honor to speak to Dustin Haisler, Chief Innovation Officer at eRepublic. You can find more on Dustin in a variety of ways. First of all, Twitter, of course, and his Twitter handle is at Dustin Haisler. You can, of course, also find him on LinkedIn, or you can go to his website. And his website can be found at www.dustinhaisler.com. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, And lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. That's what 
Ransomware is all about is psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.